Chapter 5 The Garden of the Lord Animals in the Garden In Eden, before the fall, there was no death. Romans 5.12 Animals were not, quote, wild, unquote. And Adam was able to name, that is, classify, the animals without fear. Genesis 2.19-20 But man's rebellion resulted in terrible changes throughout the world. The nature of animals was altered, so that they became a threat to the peace and safety of man. The dominion over them that Adam had exercised was lost. In Christ, however, man's dominion has been restored. Psalm 8, 5-8 with Hebrews 2, 6-9. Thus, when God saved his people, this effect of the curse began to be reversed. He led them through a dangerous wilderness, protecting them from the snakes and scorpions. Deuteronomy 8.15 And he promised them that their life in the promised land would be Eden-like in its freedom from the ravages of wild animals. Quote, I shall also grant peace in the land, so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land. Unquote. Leviticus 26.6 in fact, this is why God did not allow Israel to exterminate the Canaanites all at once. The heathen served as a buffer between the covenant people and the wild animals. Exodus 23, 29-30, Deuteronomy 7:22. Accordingly, when the prophets foretold the coming salvation in Christ, they described it in the same terms of Edenic blessing. Quote, I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods, unquote. Ezekiel 34.25 No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there, unquote. Isaiah 35.9 In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that, through the gospel's permeation of the world, the wild nature of the animals will be transformed into its original Edenic condition. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 11, 6-9 Compare Isaiah 65:25. On the other hand, God warned the curse would reappear if the people turned away from God's law. Quote, I will let loose among you the beasts of the field, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle, and reduce your number so that your roads lie deserted. Unquote. Leviticus 26:22. Compare Numbers 21:6. Deuteronomy 28, 26, 2 Kings 2, 24, 
17.25, Ezekiel 5.17, Revelation 6.8. When a culture departs from God, he surrenders its people to the dominion of wild animals in order to prevent them from having ungodly dominion over the earth. But in a godly culture, this threat against life and property will progressively disappear. And ultimately, when the knowledge of God shall cover the earth, the animals will be tamed and harnessed again to the service of God's kingdom. Finally, in this connection, we must consider the dinosaurs. For there is a whole theology built around them in the Bible. While the Bible does speak of land dinosaurs, compare Behemoth in Job 40, 15-24, which some mistake for hippopotamus, but which is actually closer to a brontosaurus, our focus here will be on dragons and sea serpents. Compare Job 7.12, 41.1-34. The creature mentioned in the latter reference, a huge fire-breathing dragon called Leviathan, is supposed by some to be a crocodile. Essentially, as part of God's good creation, Genesis 1.21, sea monsters, there is nothing, quote, evil, unquote, about these creatures, Genesis 1.31, Psalm 148.7. But, because of man's rebellion, they are used in Scripture to symbolize rebellious man at the height of his power and glory. Three kinds of dragons are spoken of in Scripture. Tannin, dragon, Psalm 91.13, Leviathan, Psalm 104.26, and Rahab, Job 26, 12-13. In Hebrew, this is a completely different word from the name of the Canaanite harlot who saved the Hebrew spies in Joshua 2. The Bible relates each of these monsters to the serpent, who stands for the subtle, deceitful enemy of God's people, Genesis 3, 1-5, 13-15. Thus, to demonstrate the divine victory and dominion over man's rebellion, God turned Moses' rod into a, quote, serpent, unquote, Exodus 4, 1 through 4, and Aaron's rod into a, quote, dragon, unquote, Tannin, Exodus 7, 8 through 12. The dragon slash serpent, therefore, becomes in Scripture a symbol of satanically inspired, rebellious pagan culture, compare Jeremiah 51, 34, especially exemplified by Egypt in its war against the covenant people. This is particularly true with regard to the monster Rahab, meaning the proud one, which is often a synonym for Egypt. Psalm 87.4, 89.10, Isaiah 30.7. God's covenant-making deliverance of his people in the Exodus is described in terms of both the original creation and God's triumph over the dragon. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not thou who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not thou who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? Isaiah 51, 9-10 The Bible also speaks of the Exodus as a salvation from Leviathan. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou didst break the heads of the dragons in the waters. Thou didst crush the heads of Leviathan. Thou didst give him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. 
Psalm 74, 13 to 14. Thus, in provisional fulfillment of the promise in Eden, the dragon's head was crushed when God saved his people from Egypt. Of course, the head wound became healed, and the dragon, accompanied by the dragon's state in his image, kept coming back to plague and persecute the seed of the woman. Compare Revelation 12 to 13. This happens again and again throughout the Old Testament, which records numerous temporary head crushings of the dragon. Judges 4:21. 5, 26 through 27, 9, 50 through 57, 1 Samuel 5, 1 through 5, 17, 49 through 51, 2 Samuel 18, 9, 20, 21 through 22, Psalm 68, 21, Habakkuk 3, 13. In terms of the threefold structure of salvation, which we saw in an earlier chapter, the definitive conquest of the dragon took place in the death and resurrection of Christ when he defeated the powers of darkness, disarmed the demonic forces, cast out the devil, and rendered him powerless. Psalm 110, verse 6, John 12, 31-32, Colossians 2, 15, Hebrews 2, 14, Revelation 12, 5-10, 3 The prophets look forward to this. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Isaiah 27.1 Progressively, the implications of Christ's victory are worked out by his people in time and on earth. John 16.33 1 John 2.13-14 4-4, Revelation 12-11, until the final triumph at the consummation of history, when the dragon is at last destroyed, Revelation 27-10. The special point to be grasped for the present age, however, is that we must expect increasing victories over the serpent, who has been placed under our feet, Romans 16-20. As the godly steadily reap the blessings of the restored Eden, Satan's dominion will shrink and wither away. This is symbolized by the fact that when all other creatures are restored to their Edenic nature, the condition of the serpent will be unchanged. God warned the dragon that he would bite the dust under the heels of the righteous, and this aspect of the curse will reach its full effect. Quote, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, unquote, says the Lord. Isaiah 65.25, compare Genesis 3.14. Trees in the Garden It goes without saying, of course, that a fundamental aspect of the Garden of Eden is that it was a garden. Every kind of beautiful and fruit-bearing tree had been planted there by God. Genesis 2.9 before the fall, food was abundant and cheap, and man did not have to spend much time in search of sustenance and refreshment. Instead, his time was spent in scientific, productive, and aesthetic activity. Genesis 2.15, 19-20 Most of his labor involved investigating and beautifying his environment. But when he rebelled, this was changed, and the curse was inflicted upon his labor and his natural surroundings. Quote, 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Genesis 3, 17-19 God imposed the curse of scarcity, and the major part of human labor became a search for food. But in salvation, God restores his people to Eden, and food becomes cheaper and easier to obtain. In turn, more time can be spent in other activities. The growth of culture is possible only when food is relatively abundant. God gives his people food in order to give them dominion. The biblical history of salvation demonstrates this again and again. In places too numerous to list here completely, godly men are mentioned as living near trees. See Genesis 18.4, 8, 30.37, Judges 3.13, 4.5, 1 Kings 19.5, John 1.48, and in a modern translation, see Genesis 12.6, 13.18, 14.13, Judges 4.11. In none of these references is the mention of the trees absolutely essential to the story itself. In a sense, we might think such a detail could have been left out. But God wants us to get the picture in our minds of his people living in the midst of abundance, surrounded by the blessings of the garden as they are restored in salvation. When Israel is blessed, we find every man sitting under his own vine and fig tree, 1 Kings 4.25 And the same is prophesied of all men who live under the blessings of the Christ, when all nations shall flow to the mountain of the Lord. Micah 4.1-4 Zechariah 3.10 For this reason, the Edenic imagery of trees, planting, and fruit is used throughout Scripture to describe God's work of salvation. In singing about God's deliverance of his people into the new Eden, Moses said, quote, Thou wilt bring them and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, unquote. Exodus 15, 17. The godly man is, quote, like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatsoever it does, he prospers. Psalm 1, 3. Compare Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8. The covenant people are, quote, like gardens beside the river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters, unquote. Numbers 24, 6. Quote, Israel will blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit, unquote. Isaiah 27, 6. The lampstand in the tabernacle was a reminder of Eden. It was actually a stylized tree, decked with artificial bulbs and flowers, all made of pure gold. Exodus 37, 17-24 The temple also was richly furnished with Edenic restoration symbolism. The cedar walls displayed carvings of gourds, flowers, palm trees, and cherubim overlaid with gold. 1 Kings 6, 15-36 Compare the vision of the restored temple in Ezekiel 41, 18-20 the Ark of the Covenant contained not only the law, but also a golden pot of manna, 
and Aaron's rod, which was miraculously covered with buds, blossoms, and almonds. Hebrews 9.4 The high priest was a living symbol of man fully restored to fellowship with God in the garden. His forehead was covered with a gold plate on which was engraved the phrase, Holy to the Lord, Exodus 28.36, as a symbol of the removal of the curse on Adam's brow. His breastplate was covered with gold and precious stones, Exodus 28.15-30, and the hem of his robe was ringed with pomegranates and golden bells, Exodus 28.33-35. As another symbol of freedom from the curse, the robe itself was made of linen. Exodus 28.6 For while they were ministering, the priests were forbidden to wear any wool at all. Quote, They shall be clothed with linen garments, and wool shall not be seen on them while they are ministering. They shall not gird themselves with anything which makes them sweat. Unquote. Ezekiel 44.17-18 in Genesis 3, 18-19, sweat is an aspect of fallen man's labor under death and a curse. The priest, as the restored man, was required to wear the light material of linen to show the removal of the curse and salvation. Edenic symbolism was also in the feasts of Israel as they celebrated the bounty of God's provision and enjoyed the fullness of life and prosperity under the blessings of the covenant. This is particularly true of the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, also called, quote, in-gathering, unquote, in Exodus 23.16. In this feast, they were required to leave their homes and live for seven days in little, quote, tabernacles, unquote, or booths, made entirely from, quote, the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, unquote, Leviticus 23.40. Israel usually dwelled in walled cities as a protection against their enemies. Yet, at the very time of prosperity, the end of harvest, when attack would seem most likely, God ordered them to leave the security of their homes and journey to Jerusalem, to live in unprotected booths made of branches, palm fronds, and fruit. God promised, however, that he would keep the heathen from attacking during the festivals. Exodus 34, 23-24 And Israel had to trust in his strength. The feast was, obviously, a reminder of life in Eden, when walled cities were unnecessary, and it looked forward to the day when the world would be turned into Eden, and the nations would beat their swords into plowshares. Micah 4, 3 For this reason, they were also commanded to sacrifice 70 bullocks during the feast. Numbers 29, 12-38 Why? Because the number of the original nations of the earth was 70. They are listed in Genesis 10. And the feast celebrated the ingathering of all nations into God's kingdom. Thus, atonement was made for all. It is important to remember that the Jews did not keep this feast. In fact, they forgot it was even in the Bible until their return from captivity under Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah 8, 13-18 During this period of renewal and restoration, God enlightened the minds of the prophets to understand the significance of this feast. 
as an acted-out prophecy of the conversion of all nations to the true faith. On the last day of the feast, Haggai 2.1, God spoke through Haggai, quote, I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house, the temple, with glory. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts, unquote. Haggai 2.7-8 About this same time, Zechariah prophesied about the meaning of the feast in terms of the conversion of all nations and the sanctification of every area of life. Zechariah 14.16-21 And hundreds of years later, during the celebration of the same feast, Christ himself declared its meaning. The outpouring of the Spirit upon the restored believer so that the church becomes a means of restoration to the entire world. John 7, 37-39 Compare Ezekiel 47, 1-12 Israel was to be the means of bringing the blessings of the Garden of Eden to the world. Scripture goes out of its way to portray this symbolically when it tells us twice, Exodus 15, 27, Numbers 3-9, of Israel camping at Elim, where there were twelve wells of water, the twelve tribes of Israel, and seventy palm trees, the seventy nations of the world. God thus organized Israel as a small-scale model of the world, giving it seventy elders, Exodus 24.1. And Jesus followed this pattern by sending out seventy disciples, Luke 10.1. God's people are a nation of priests, Exodus 19.6, 1 Peter 2.9, Revelation 1.6, chosen to bring the light of the gospel into a world darkened by sin and the curse. Increasingly, the hope expressed in the Feast of Tabernacles will be realized as the whole earth becomes a garden, Isaiah 11.9, Daniel 2.35 as the world is filled with blessing and security, and there is no longer any need for walled cities. Leviticus 23, 3-6, Isaiah 65, 17-25, Ezekiel 34, 25-29. The Garden of Eden, the mountain of the Lord, will be restored in history, before the second coming, by the power of the gospel, and the desert will rejoice and blossom as the rose. Isaiah 35.1 In contrast, the Bible says that God controls the heathen by withholding food and water. To understand the misery of much of the so-called, quote, third world, unquote, we need to look first at its ungodly religion and culture. The Edenic blessings of abundance will never be theirs until they repent and believe the gospel. Christian cultures, on the other hand, especially the countries of the Reformation, are blessed with food that is relatively cheap and abundant. But the biblical warning is clear. If our nation continues in its apostasy, famine will come as surely as our rebellious first parents were cast out of Eden. We cannot possess the blessings of the garden if we live in rebellion against God. The fruitful field will again become a wilderness. But it will come about, 
If you will not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which, which I charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Deuteronomy 28, 15-19 Upon the land of my people thorns and briars shall come up, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest. Isaiah 32, 13-15 What then was God to do? What else could he possibly do, being God, but renew his image in mankind, so that through it men might once more come to know him? And how could this be done, save by the coming of the very image himself, our Savior, Jesus Christ? Men could not have done it, for they are only made after the image. Nor could angels have done it for they are not the images of God. The word of God came in his own person, because it was he alone, the image of the Father, who could recreate man made after the image. In order to effect this recreation, however, he had first to do away with death and corruption. Therefore he assumed a human body, in order that in it death might once for all be destroyed and that men might be renewed according to the image. St. Athanasius on the Incarnation, 